want to take a minute and remind us of where we have been, remembering and recognizing that the first 10 chapters, essentially the author is setting up an argument about the superiority of Jesus, or Jesus being the goat, the greatest of all time, or the best of the best. And the reason for that, if we remember, is that Christ has come, he has lived, he has died, he has been resurrected from the grave, demonstrated his uh, triumph over sin and death, has walked among the people, shown himself to what we see biblically to over 500 individuals that indeed he had risen from the grave. And now he has said, I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going essentially to the kingdom and I'm going to be setting this up. I will be back. And we know scripturally that Christ will be back at only a time the Father knows. Now all of this has occurred and people have seen the miracles of Jesus. People have recognized that Jesus indeed is God in the flesh. And so the people who were God's people begin to move from a system that they had followed for thousands of years of essentially atoning for their sins through a priest or a great high priest that would be located either in the temple or the tabernacle to belief in Christ. And all through these 10 chapters, we've discovered how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the Old Testament system. Jesus is better than Moses, etc., etc. And the author lays out why. He's building the argument. And the reason be is because what's happened is Christ has ascended into heaven these individuals are now believing in Jesus, and simultaneously, as they're living, the temple, where essentially all of this religious order was going on, is still intact. It's still going on. And the people that have begun to follow Jesus are being persecuted for their faith. They're having a hard time. Things aren't going well for them. And in that, they're beginning to say, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he was. I'm looking over there, and I'm seeing this old go on, so maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to the way it was. And so the author of Hebrews writes this book to demonstrate that the old was entirely insufficient. That the old, all it did in actuality, was remind individuals of how truly sinful they are. All it did was make people look good on the outside, but it did not have the ability to cleanse them from within. Yet Christ, in what we call a one and done, being God in the flesh, was able to take all of that through his death and resurrection from the grave and atone, or what we would say, pay for our sins cleansing us from within, removing our sinfulness. We've just sung a few songs on that. We've talked about the fact that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and they are forgotten. But the challenge in that for us today is as we walk with Jesus in some of the challenges that we might have, there might be this temptation or this essentially spiritual depression to go forward and say, you know, 
I'm doing the Jesus thing. I'm coming to church. I'm doing my thing. But it's just not going the way that I think it should. It's not going the way that I have planned out for it. And I'm wondering if it would be better to maybe go back to what was. Okay? And the author's saying, by no means. Remember what you have in Jesus. Now, praise God, we get through essentially chapter 10. And last week was a very forceful warning. And the warning is essentially this. Look, if you've been presented the gospel, if someone has come forward and you understand and know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that there are no means by which you can get to God or heaven on your own, and that Christ died on your behalf to forgive you and to, essentially, by placing your faith and trust in him, put you in right relationship with God. And you hear that, and you know that, and you then say, yep, I've got it, I've got the knowledge of it, I understand it intellectually, I've heard the gospel, I get the gospel, but I don't want the gospel. That's not a good thing. That's the warning that this author says. And he says, look, if you understand it and you choose to reject Jesus, things aren't going to be very good for you. And so he moves now off of that understanding to this next chapter. And what he does is he goes through a repetitive series by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, and he gives biblical examples of Old Testament individuals, or we'll call them characters, of how they walked by faith and not by sight. They had heard, they had known, they trusted in the promises of God that they knew of at that time, and in that they continued to walk with God by faith. But what we're going to discover is in the promises that they were given, many of them, if not all of them, never saw what was promised actually materialize. And so the author comes forward and he says, I'm going to give you a definition of what faith is. I'm going to tell you it's a belief in trusting in the promises of God and moving forward despite what you might be seeing around you. And what's interesting is these individuals were in the context of waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the coming of the Savior. They were waiting for the coming of the promised one. We're in a little bit different of a context. We're still all in the great drama of redemption, but we have the joy of knowing that Jesus is our Savior. But where we are in this drama is we are awaiting the second coming of Jesus, the triumphal return of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is, is I want to just ask you a couple of questions. When we're walking with Jesus, when we're doing our thing, and the world around us appears to be getting darker, how does it make you feel? Are you concerned? Are there times maybe when you're saying, is this really true? Is Jesus really going to come back? Is he truly going to restore what's going on? Can I believe it? Because right now I can't see it. And so the question that we're going to ask this morning and that we're going to dive into in this chapter is this. 
When our faith appears to be failing us, where should our focus be? And the reason that I'm asking that question, and I won't give away next Sunday's sermon, is you're going to see the context of the author saying, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, right? But then right at the beginning of chapter 12, the author says, given all of this, let us, what? Where should our focus be? The world around me is falling apart. Everything is going wrong. What do I do? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Forget about what's going on around here. Keep your focus on him. That's what we're leading to. And so one of the things that I want to start off with before we dive into a deep dive of every single individual character here, you guys should laugh if you're paying attention. We're not going to do a deep dive in every single character here. If we did, it'd be about a five-hour sermon, but we're going to briefly highlight some of those things. But before we do, I want to do this. Remember that the words, better, more, greater, okay? Better, more, greater, are utilized 25 times in the book of Hebrews to describe what we have in Christ. Better, more, greater. Better, more, greater. Now, I won't do that 25 times. But there's a reason for that. The repetition that the author is giving is to remind us to essentially encode into us, into our biblical DNA, that we have a better, more, greater Savior in Jesus Christ than we did in the Old Testament system. So why would we go back to that? Now for us today, I would say, we have a better, more, greater Savior in Jesus. So why would we turn to the world? Why would we take Jesus and a little bit of a horoscope, or Jesus and a lot of the New Age movement, or Jesus and a couple of other religions and mix them together? That's the whole point that the author's making. And so a point of reflection that I want you to think about before we dive into this is simply this. When your faith in Christ appears to be failing you, has anybody been in a moment when they've been walking with Jesus and all around them it appears that their faith in Christ appears to be failing them? Can we be honest? Yeah. So when, not if, when your faith appears to be failing you, remember how much better, more, greater Christ is than any other system of faith. That's what's going on. That's what the author is exhorting. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to start off and we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. This is called the Hall of Faith. And lovingly, what I would encourage you to do, if you have time, is to go in and look at each of these uh, records, for lack of a better word, as they happen in the Old Testament. Because each of these are a wonderful testimony to the faithfulness of God and individuals trusting and believing in what God had promised. So we come off of this warning, right? We come off of the warning in verse 39 of chapter 10, and it says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Transition. And that's what we come to this morning. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
This is what the uh, ancients were commended for. So he gives a definition, and he lays that foundation. And so before we dive into reading some of these things, I want to take a minute, and I want you to really take a second and focus on those first two verses. Because what we tend to do is, is we tend to kind of pass over those and then read over all of these individuals and say, okay, great. And then to be honest with you, when we get down probably uh, to verse 11, we're like, by faith, by faith. Okay, I'm done. I'm just going to skip to chapter 12. But if we don't understand the foundation, then there's nothing to build upon. And so the author is saying, look, I'm going to give you a biblical definition of what faith is. And so first and foremost, I want to encourage us and let you know that biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God to bring about what he has promised. This isn't a blind faith. This isn't just sitting there going, oh, I hope it's true. Oh, I've heard it's true. Oh, I kind of would like to guess that it's true. I'm kind of putting my money over here and hoping that the wheel lands on the ball that I've called. I hope it goes black 32, but I'm not sure. I don't even know if it is black and 32. I don't play roulette. But this is something that you're sitting there and you're saying, look, my faith the faith that I have in my Savior is a confident trust in the eternal God to bring about what he has promised. And so lovingly, what I want to do is I want to lay that foundation for all of us. Do you have a confident trust? Not a wavering trust. Not a so-so trust. Not, I'll kind of stick my foot in here, but I'm going to keep the rest of me out here just in case it isn't true. Are you, for lack of a better word, all in for Jesus? Number one. Number two. Are you confident in it? Yeah, there are times that I've doubted. There are times that I wonder, but what draws me back is to go back to the promises that God has given, to the reading of the scriptures, and to say the world is swirling around me right now, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, and I'm going to read the promises that he's given, both in the Old Testament and in the New. I'm going to look at how he's fulfilled the promises. I'm going to trust that if he's fulfilled the promises that he said, the promises that are still to come, he will do, because he is a God who does not change. He is a God whose word is his bond. He is a God in whom we can trust. And so outwardly, I might be wavering, but inwardly, I'm bolstered and confident because of the word of God and the promises that he gives. And it's a confident trust that despite what I see or don't see around me, that God will bring about what indeed he has promised. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Interestingly enough, the ESV study Bible kind of adds a little bit to this. And it says, by defining faith as assurance and conviction. And so before we go on, I want to ask you something. Is your faith in Christ bolstered and foundationally formed with assurance and conviction? By defining faith as assurance and conviction, the author indicates that biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in imaginary, wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence 
that something in the future, something that is not yet seen, but has been promised by God, will actually come to pass because not you, not your ability, not your intelligence, not how many times you come to church or don't come to church. God will be the one who will bring it about. So brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, I just ask you a simple question. When we talk about the coming of Jesus, the triumphant return of our Lord and Savior, do you look at that with confidence? Assurance? Knowing that indeed, someday, at some point, that I don't know and none of us do, the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return. Or do we just kind of waver in that? Do we kind of, uh, yeah, maybe. I hope so. I hope that's what the scriptures say. I hope that we can believe the scriptures. And so when we begin to doubt, do we go back and say, you know what, I do struggle with this. But I look back and I look and see what God has also promised and delivered. And done so rightly, wholly, correctly in his time for his honor and his glory. And if he's done it there, he'll do it here. And so we dive into this. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. I am sure of my hope in Jesus. That he has died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And that because I've placed my faith and trust in him, even though I'm a sinner, I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And I am a child of the king and my inheritance is secure. Confidence. Now, I'm not bragging, but I'm confidently saying, this is what my Savior has done for me. And P.S., by the way, he's done it all for you. And certain of what we do not see. I don't know when Jesus is going to return. I have no idea. I've said before, if I do and I tell you, something's wrong. But I am absolutely certain that at some point, Jesus will return. Now, it may be in my lifetime. It may be centuries down the road. But I know with 100% certainty that I can hang my hat, my eternal salvation and being and destiny on the one who said, I am coming back for you. That's a confident faith. And then he goes in and he says, okay, I'm going to give you these examples. And so the next thing that we see is this. All right? We're going to go basically verses 3 through 31. And we're going to look back. Look back to all who lived by faith, by faith, by faith. And so he starts off and he says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And I want to pause there. This is the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. Now, to be honest with you, science doesn't answer that. How do you create something out of nothing? Principles in science say you've got to have something to be able to create something. I don't get it. I can't answer it. I don't know. And the other thing is, is I'm sitting here and I'm going, not only did he create something out of nothing, but he spoke it into being. 
doesn't make sense. Visually, I can't see it, but I believe it because of my confident faith in the one who is and the promises that he's given. Creation ex nihilo. And then he continues on. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was uh, commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was uh, commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Don't miss that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God loves you no more today than he did tomorrow. No more than he did the other day because he loves you in Jesus Christ. But if you're sitting there and saying, how can I please God? The manner of how you please God is to walk by faith in the God who has given the promises that he's done. We continue on in kind of the second part of verse six because anyone who comes to him must believe, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe? And are you earnestly seeking him? Notice that word, earnestly. Not half-heartedly, not one foot in and one foot out, not coming to church to advance your own self or gain maybe political motives or advance your business or advance this or advance that. You are here to earnestly seek after the Savior of whom you know and trust. By faith, Noah, when warned about things yet not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the countless as the sand on the seashore. And then don't miss this. God promises these things. God says, if you follow me, this is what I will do. This is what I promise to do. All of these people followed God in faith and are commended by God for their faithfulness. But then we get to verse 13. God, I'm trusting you. God, I've known that you've said you're going to do this. God, I know that you've given me this promise. When is it going to come? When is it going to be there? Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. You lied to me, God. I trusted in your promise and now I'm dead. 
they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe with my whole heart that Jesus will return. I believe that Jesus will return triumphantly. I may be fortunate enough to see, as I'm alive, his triumphant return, but I may die. But I know that I see from a distance that Jesus is coming again. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Anybody feel like they don't belong? The more I fall in love with Jesus, the less and less I feel like I belong. I don't know that that's a bad thing. Because this isn't our home. This isn't what we're destined for. This isn't where we're meant to be. We are aliens in a foreign land. And lovingly, I tell you, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more this place should feel foreign to you. Verse 14. People who say such things now that they are looking for a country of their own, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Sound familiar? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Passive in its word. But it's not here. You promised it, and you said you've prepared it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, yes, it is yours. It is there, and I've prepared a place for you. It's done, yet it's coming. It's yours yet not yet, but it is yours because of what Christ has done. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises were about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Whole another sermon for another day. We've been waiting for offspring. You've promised that I'm going to have offspring. Now you're going to tell me that the one son you've given me you're asking to sacrifice. How in the world is this going to come together? But I still walk in faith. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he uh, leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he, his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Now, lovingly, what I'm going to do is, is I would encourage you to continue reading on by faith, by faith, by faith. But interesting enough, right? You're getting excited and you're sitting there and you're like, all these people did great things for God, right? Let me get to verse 32. So we're going to jump to verse 32. Because those guys get the credit. They're in there, right? They get mentioned in the hall of faith. It's all exciting. And then you're sitting there and you're like, wait a minute, I lived for Jesus too. I lived for the coming of the Messiah. We get to verse 32, right? And what more shall I say? I'm running out of time, okay? Church is getting ready to close. People want to go eat, go watch the game. So I've got to hurry up, right? 
And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered, blah, 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 right? Let's pause for a minute. Let's talk about these people. Interestingly enough, he kind of just goes in and he just mentions them. But we need to remember, particularly in verses 32 through 35a, through faith these individuals accomplish great things for God. He just mentions them. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sores, who weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. What an awesome story. What a beautiful thing. And so let's just take a minute, and I'm going to kind of go through this with you. Let's talk about these people. Gideon, Gideon in Judges 6 through 8, delivered God's people, defeating the Midianite army of 135,000 men with just 300 of his own. Talk about faith. Talk about trusting the promises of God. Barak in Judges 4, commander, who came forward in response to the call of Deborah to fight Jabin, king of the Canaanites. Samson in Judges 13 through 16, subdued the Philistine hold on the Israelites and was ruler over Israel for 20 years. Jephthah, Judges 11 through 12, was a bastard child who was a mighty warrior who prayed to the Lord to help him defeat the Ammonites. David was the greatest king of Israel, human ancestor to Jesus, defeated Goliath and partook in the Davidic covenant. Samuel was the first of the Lord's prophets whose prophecy was so unique all the tribes heard about him. Elijah. The spirit of Elijah was with Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the other prophets before, during, and after the exile. Elisha was a contemporary to Elijah. It was a balanced blend of the goodness and judgment of God. Isaiah was a prophet who was without equal in his written expression, and he ministered to God's people during an era of great turmoil. And Jeremiah, never married, devoted his entire adult life to prophetic work, and he openly condemned the idolatry of the Israelites. These are all the people that are mentioned right here. That's what they did. Great things for God. Wonderful stuff. And then we read on now. These people were commended for their faith, but others, in verse 35b, were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all these individuals walk by faith. All of these individuals are commended by God for their faith. But all of these individuals did not have a wonderful life. The more they fell in love with God, the more they followed God, the more the world hated them. 
And so one of the things I want to tell you is all of these people that are mentioned in those verses are then followed up by their fate and what happened to them in the world. And so in verse 35b through 38, we see simply this, that while their faith allowed these individuals to accomplish great things for God, however, for several of them, it would appear that their faith had failed them. It would appear temporally at times that their faith had failed them. Let's take a minute and let's talk about what happened to these people. Gideon in Judges 8.33, as soon as Gideon died of old age, the Israelites turned to worship of Baal and ignored his family. You mean I did all of this to follow you, God, and the moment that I die, all of the people that I've been trying to tell you about turned to another God. Doesn't look good. Barak, simply this, was a one-hit wonder. Nothing is mentioned of him until Hebrews 11. Samson falls prey to the deceptive beauty of the prostitute Delilah, uh, Delilah who cuts his hair, which removes his strength. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord that if he helped him win a victory, he would sacrifice the first thing that came to him after the battle. God, if you do this, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes to me after the battle. When is the victory? The first thing that came to him after the battle was his beautiful dancing daughter. Now scripturally, we're not 100% sure indeed if he did end up sacrificing her. But that was the first thing that came to him after he had asked God to bring him in victory. David. Everybody loves David, right? Let me just say this. I don't think he was at his best when he saw Bathsheba bathing. Samuel appointed his sons, Joel and Abijah, as his successors, only to have them prove to be unworthy and be rejected by Israel. Elijah, great prophet, but he didn't get a book deal. Amazing prophet. Isaiah gets all the credit. Can you believe all the royalties that he has missed? Elisha gets confused with the prophet Elijah, right? Could you name me something different? Call me Bob, please. P.S., by the way, he also didn't get a book deal. Isaiah, greatest prophet of all time, writer of what individuals call the fifth gospel, quoted more times in the New Testament, famous prophet who walked the people of God through turmoil and trouble, was sawed in two, most likely by the orders of King Manasseh. And Jeremiah was taken against his will to Egypt and was stoned to death by his contemporaries. Man, sight doesn't look so good, does it? And yet, all of these individuals have been commended by God because of the faith in who they believed. And what the author is doing is he's saying, look back to these individuals who walked faithfully with God, be reminded of what occurred to them temporally, but also be reminded of where they are now because of the promise that God has given. (laughs) 
And so one of the things that I want you to ponder, one of the things that I want you to think through, one of the things I want you to pray through is this. When your faith or faithfulness to Christ leads you to a point in which it appears to have failed you, will you remain faithful? And lovingly, what I want to do here is encourage you in something. And I'm going to be very real with you. The more you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the more the Savior will ask you to be faithful. The more he asks you to be faithful, the harder it will come. And in those moments, when it's hard, not if, when it's hard, you'll have one of two choices. Remain faithful and trust or waver and go back. That's what the author is setting up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to rest assured that the one in whom we have faith, okay, the object of our faith, the one in whom we have faith, going back to that biblical definition, foundationally, on Christ and his promises will not fail us. Period. And so, without giving next Sunday's message away, where are you focusing your eyes? We continue on in these last couple of verses we see this. These were all commended for their faith. Repeats, the author repeats this. Don't miss this. If you have your Bibles, I would circle this, I would highlight it. Yet none of them received what was promised. You said this would happen. You told me I would have this. You said that this is coming, and I have died, and I didn't receive it. Praise God that the author of Hebrews continues on with these next couple of words. God had planned something better Okay, don't miss this. God had planned something better for us, inclusive, okay? I know sometimes it's like, yeah, whatever, but don't miss, the, the us here in the, in the original writing is an inclusive for those who believe. It is not an exclusive in the sense of, well, there's part of you who get it and part of not, but it is divisive. Please hear me, for us. Who's the us? all inclusive but exclusive. It's only inclusive for those who believe. It is there for you. And why is that important? Because for centuries, what was going on was the people of God, the Israelites were the ones whom God was working with. The others, the Gentiles of us, were essentially on the outs, okay? 
Another deep theological thing, we'll talk about that. But we, in this time, in that age, would have been on the outs. We would have been standing outside of the temple or the tabernacle, depending upon the era. Now the era of when this was written, it would be the temple. We would have been looking and saying, what's going on over there? What's that all about? I see people going in. I see people doing things. I see that only certain people can come in. I've heard that like certain people can kind of go into this one spot and then only like an exclusive can kind of go into this other spot. And then this only one person, this, this high priest, can only go into, I think, what's called the Holy of Holies. And I guess that's where their God dwells. But I don't know. Because I'm not included. But may we go back and remember what the author said, that when Christ died, he accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. And he says, let us what? Draw near. We're no longer on the outside. We're no longer separated by a temple. We're no longer separated by the Holy of Holies. We know in scripture that what? The veil is torn in two when Jesus dies on the cross. And all of that is saying, it is yours. So draw near to me. Let us draw near to God. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus, going back to these individuals and saying that together, all of them, along with us, those that he's speaking to there and those who will believe after that this was written are made perfect, something better because of all of what Christ has done through the one and done. Good, better, best, the goat, the greatest of all time. And so what I want to encourage you with is this, verses 39 to 40, while they did not receive what was promised, they were all commended for their faith. Now please hear me, I don't want you leaving. In their lifetime they didn't receive what was promised. But they have received what was promised. They were all commended for their faith. Remember, this is one of the things I want to point out to you. All of them testified to the hope that was to come. All of them testified to the hope of the Messiah. All of them believed in God or Yahweh at that time. But none of them lived to see the arrival of that hope in their Messiah, Jesus. We are on the other side of that. We are past the arrival of the Messiah Jesus, God in the flesh, who's come, who's lived, who died on the cross, has risen from the grave. But we all together are in the awaiting for his return. And that is something better. That is something best. That is the establishment of his kingdom. And we have that promise, and we've been given that promise when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Biblical faith, again, is being confident and confidently trusting in the eternal God to bring about what is promised. 
And so I ask you this question. These heroes of the faith, all of these people who have been mentioned, never saw the object of their faith in their earthly lives. Now, while we stand opposite of them knowing about Jesus, okay, what's different is, is they were looking to the Messiah. We know the Messiah has come and are trusting, but all of us are looking forward to his return. We stand opposite of them knowing about Jesus, but like them, we wait for his triumph return. And so I leave you with this. Will we trust in faith that he will? And let me say one more time. Will we trust in faith that he will? A confident faith in an eternal God to bring about what has been promised. Take-home truth is simply this. Christ is the best of the best. Therefore, find strength in the one who is faithful and did not fail. Christ is the best of the best. Therefore, find strength in the one who is faithful and did not fail. For those of you who are type A people who like to get a jump on next Sunday, continue reading on. Because of this, Therefore, since we are surrounded, he's going looking by such great witnesses, because we have all of these people, let us throw off everything that hinders, all of the things that are drawing us away from God and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us, inclusive, fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the writing of the author of Hebrews. We thank you for all of these individuals who walked by faith and not by sight. Father, we thank you for the examples that were given. We thank you for the reality of their faith. We thank you, too, for the reality of what happened to them because of their faith. Father, in that, may we not waver. May we not wonder. May we not become confused. But Lord, may we trust confidently in you and the promises that you have given to bring about what still is yet to come because you have brought about what has been promised already. We thank you. We love you. We do pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,